this week, and you'll find out why in just a few moments. I kept thinking about those you might be a kind of jokes that go around. One of them that's very, very kind of famous is Jeff Foxworthy is you might be a redneck if. And uh, I found one particular website where he, it was actually from him, had over 300 lines like that. You might be a redneck if. Well, I didn't want to insult anybody. And so I figured I would pick something that I felt more exposed me in terms of what I might be. And so you might be from Louisiana if your sunglasses fog up when you step outside. No matter where, you, no matter where else you go in the world, you are always disappointed with the food. Now, some of you will understand this one. You know you recycled too much newspaper when there isn't enough for the dinner table, particularly for crawfish and crabs. You eat snowballs instead of throwing them. And your favorite flavor of snowballs is a fruit flavor with some kind of heavy cream on it. Your house payment is less than your air conditioning bill. You push old ladies and children out of the way to catch Mardi Gras beads. You wear sweaters in October because it should be cold. And then this one, you eat out and spread and you eat out at a restaurant and spend the entire meal talking about all the other good restaurants you visited. Now, if you've ever met someone from Louisiana or if you've ever lived in Louisiana, every one of those is true, and I had about 30 more that I won't read this morning. And as I read that, to me, it just sort of warms my heart because I really do identify with that. I'm Pennsylvanian now, go Eagles. And, you know, that's... um, (laughs) My children are reacting in a different way. But uh, I understand that, that, you know, now I have a new place. But when I read that, I really do identify with those 25 years down, down south. Sometimes there's another way that you can do those kinds of questions. It's much more serious. Now, the reason why I like that is because I identify with that, and I know that it reflects my experience. But when I used to be involved in counseling, and I had the counseling service, there was something that I had called the DSM. The time we used DSM-3, those of you that are in counseling know what I'm talking about. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I think they're up to five. Yeah, I think they're up to five now. But inside there, there were some decision charts that would help you diagnose a problem. And it would say, something would say, you know, if this, and then you'd answer no, and it would take you in this direction. If you answered yes, it would take you in this direction. Then that would be another question that would say, if this, yes or no, and as you worked your way down through that diagnostic tree, you could come to the bottom and say, this is the problem. When we would do insurance and things like that, we'd have to get to the bottom with that diagnostic code, and all of that would have to go into the insurance company. Those kinds of decision trees are important, particularly when I'm not aware of what's going on. The struggle with so many of the ailments we have 
physically, emotionally, is it's so easy to deny them. You know, how many people do you hear who are having a heart attack and they think it's what? Indigestion. And they just kind of brush it aside. Or, or other things that, that we just, it's so easy to just ignore. That is true emotionally. That's true physically. But the struggle is it's also true spiritually. Sometimes I think I'm doing a lot better than what I really am. Sometimes I'm not aware of some of the struggles that are going on in my life that are destructive and causing problems. This morning, we're in 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 12. And we're going to skip a couple verses from last week, and we're going to pick up in verse 19. And in verse 19, Paul is addressing an incredibly difficult problem. The whole struggle in 2 Corinthians was this division that had taken place between Paul and the church. And some people had come in and had stirred up the church. And they were denying Paul's apostleship. But even more importantly, they were denying Paul's message. Which was to deny the very gospel upon which their lives were built. And so Paul has been addressing that, and he sent the severe letter, and then he sent Titus, and he got the report back that things were going well, but then as he's writing, as he comes to, to, to chapter 10, suddenly something must have happened, and he heard some more bad news, and he begins to address the problem all over again. And as you come to the end of chapter 12, Paul is saying the problem is a divisiveness a divisive attitude that is destroying this church. It's destroying their effectiveness. It's destroying their relationships. So as we come to these few verses, verses 19 through 21, Paul says this in a loud shouting voice. It would be all caps if it was an email. We must carefully confront those actions, those attitudes, those responses that would divide us. Whether it's as a family, and I see these in families, or whether it's a congregation, whether it's a small group, There are certain ways that we can respond to one another that create divisions, create hurt feelings that damage other people. And many times, we're not even aware we're doing it. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're just going to be looking at 19, 20, and 21. And the first thing that we need to understand is that divisiveness, this this actions that cause a dividing and a hurting within the body are serious sins that must be addressed properly. Now, we we have, there's a a, a wonderful book that that our small group is dealing with that is called Respectable Sins. Is that it? It is Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. And he goes through and he talks about those sins that we tend to accept in others. And these are some of them. 
Paul wants to understand they are just as serious as those terrible sins we tend to put on a different level. Paul says these are serious. And what you notice as you read through these few verses is that we often minimize these divisive actions. They are serious sins. They do not please our Father. They cause great harm and division in the body and they hurt other people seriously. The wounds don't bleed, but the tears often flow. Paul shows the seriousness of these sins by comparing them with immoral actions. As Paul is describing the the sins that that John read through there in, in verse 20, he goes on to say, And I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, their sexual sins, their, their, their sexual debauchery. And Paul says, as I'm dealing with these divisive sins, I group them all together. But we want to condemn fornication, we want to condemn pornography, and we want to condemn adultery, and we want to condemn all of those sins of of immorality, and rightfully so. But Paul says, you know, when it comes to the body of Christ, these other things, these things that we so easily accept and so easily deny are just as destructive and require repentance. Groups them all together. And in chapter 13, when he comes and says, you know what, if things don't change, I'm going to have to bring discipline to you, Corinth. He doesn't divide between them. He says, they're sin. They're destroying you and your relationships and the body. Their seriousness is demonstrated by the pain they cause. The translation here is so wonderful. They do a great job in in the NIV. And though the word fear doesn't, uh, the fear isn't present in the original text, the, the idea of it is. And so they did a great job just sort of over and over again, translating that idea of fear. Paul in verse 20 says, for I'm afraid that when I come, down in verse 20, he says, I'm sorry, in verse 20 again, he says, I fear that, I'm, that there may be. Then he goes down in verse 21 and says, I'm afraid that. He talks about being humbled. I'm, I'm afraid that I will have to be humbled. And what he's talking about is, I'm afraid that I'm going to have to use my apostolic authority in ways that I find distasteful. You don't read often in Paul, thus saith the apostle. Paul didn't like to act that way. He could. He says, I might have had to be humbled. And as you read farther down, he says, I am grieved. I am wounded that these things exist. And then the seriousness is demonstrated by the potential for discipline. We're not going to look at the verses in a a significant way this morning. And we're probably going to skip over them again next week as we finish this series up. But Paul says, 
I may have to come and discipline. Paul's saying, don't make me come down there. Is basically what he's saying. Paul says, these are serious. But in dealing with them, he's also very gentle. Now, we read the end of a series that has been taking place over a number of years. Paul says, beloved, deal with these things. Deal with these. Even in this passage, he's saying, you know what? You don't want me to have to come like this. He's still calling them beloved friends. And though destructive, divisive act, their divisive actions are dealt with patiently. We, we need to love one another. We, and, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is long-suffering. Paul does that, shows that by, by just being long-suffering. Paul has been dealing with this problem in the church of Corinth for eight years. For eight years he has been attempting to have the folks deal with these divisive actions within their midst. He sent three different, this will be the third letter that he's sending that we're reading here. He he wrote 1 Corinthians, then he wrote the severe letter that we don't know what it contained because it was severe and nobody wanted to keep it. Now he's writing this one. There would be three different visits. The visit when he established the church. The the visit when they basically were so offensive to him and so demeaning to him. He finally just left so that things wouldn't get more destructive. He actually withdrew. And now this visit. Where many had repented, but many hadn't yet. There were several representatives that were dispatched. Titus was dispatched. The the brother that went along, we don't even know who he was, but he's well respected. They were dispatched to try to deal with this. Paul says, I'm being patient. I'm being long-suffering. I'm concerned. He's not out to shame. He's not out to condemn. He's not out to, to crush. He's not out to whack people upside the head. He's just simply saying, these are serious issues. There's a carefulness in his speech. As Paul is dealing with this, he does something that I often do when I'm preaching. Before somebody has the opportunity to misunderstand what you say, you say what the misunderstanding would be and then correct it. Paul says, you know, I know you guys are so divisive. I know you are so slanderous. I know you are so condemning that even before you have a chance, verse 19, have you been thinking all along that I've been defending myself? No, 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 no. The only reason I'm taking this boasting, this this talking about what God is doing in our, our midst is so that you can learn. It's for your maturity because if you reject me, if you reject my ministry, even more, if you reject my, my, my message, it will destroy you. Now, you can reject my message. That's fine. But Paul was an apostle. He was laying the foundations of our Christian life. Actually, it's not fine if you reject my words. But if my, if my words are a reflection of what Paul is saying, don't reject them. If they're my words, yeah. 
Paul says, I'm doing this because of you. And he's so careful to, to avoid being misunderstood. He's being cautious here. And then, I don't remember what that point was. Oh, he expected them to respond. He expected them to change. He wasn't setting this up so he could condemn them. He was addressing this so that they would change. Hope is also demonstrated in the ways that Paul responded here. The purpose of the exposure is to build up, not tear down. That's what Paul says there in verse 19. He says, the reason why I do this is not so that I can tear you down, but that I can strengthen you. I can build you up. And the sins we're going to look at in just a few moments, you're going to look into your, in, your own heart. And let me tell you, you're going to find them there. But the purpose to look at this is not to condemn. It's to build up. It's to say, deal with these things. Address them. We all struggle with them. But we need to address them. The purpose is to expose for, for repentance that we might see what we're doing and how that damages others. I've told you, one time Cindy came up to me and said, honey, you always have to be right. And my first reaction was, yeah. And then she began to show me how it hurt her and how it kept me from hearing her. Now, I could have said, how dare you? Or I could say, thank you. That's what Paul's trying to do here. The purpose of the exposure is to bring about a change in their behavior so that they can be proper in the ways they relate to one another. And then the purpose of the exposure is to avoid having to discipline. Well, if you're a parent, you know what this is like. So often you just don't want to have to do the discipline. For us, because usually you don't want to look mean. For Paul says, I don't want to look authoritarian. I really don't. To me, that's humbling. That's distasteful. Paul says, let's avoid all that. Let's look into our own hearts. And let's see if we struggle with these. Not to be shamed. Not to be whacked upside the head. But to begin to deal with them. Now what are we talking about? Paul is telling us that we need to deal with the divisiveness involved in what I'm going to call the egregious eight. I had to come up with an E. You know, you have the terrible ten, you have the... You know, the dirty dozen. These are the egregious eight. They're the ways that we act towards one another. The ways that we relate at times. That damage relationships. You find the egregious eight listed there in verse 20. When, I, when he says, I fear that there may be, and here are the eight, 
quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, self-promotion or self-centeredness. That's the idea behind factions there. Slander, gossip, arrogance, and general mayhem. Paul says we need to look at the ways that we relate to other people. And we need to ask the question, where do those egregious eight surface in my life? Now, I'll tell you what will be easy. To look at your spouse or your friend or your small group companion or whatever it is and say, well, I see that in them. What's so important is I see it in me. And I deal with it. Now, when we look at the egregious eight, we're looking at those ways that we relate to one another that destroys relationship. When I do premarital counseling, there's a whole section that I do on communication. And basically part of it is how to have a good fight. What are the ground rules? And many of those ground rules deal with not acting in this way, not addressing one another with those egregious eights. To remove them from the ways that you communicate to one another. Everyone struggles with these egregious eight. All of us struggle with some of these, and you can read down with them, quarreling. You ever just get in that argument? You know it's stupid. Kids, don't say that word. You know it's foolish. Five hours later, you won't even remember what you were quarreling about. We do that in churches. I told you, the first church I ever pastored had a split in the congregation, whether or not to have the bathrooms at the back of the church or the front of the church. That's quarreling. You know, my attitude is put them in the middle. Does it really matter? Jealousy. Feeling pain over a positiveness in another person's life. Outbursts of anger. I don't think we need to explain that one. We know what that's like. Self-centeredness, slander, gossip, arrogance. That idea of, I look out for me first. I, you know, I'm, all, I'm always right. I'm always right. What Cindy said to me when she said, Keith, you always need to be right. She was saying, you're so arrogant. But she was loving enough to say it differently. And just causing disorder. When you look at that list, you know you're found there somewhere. But the problem with that list is this. Some of the egregious eight are more sinister because they are so deniable. And I'm going to pick on two of them. Gossip and slander. People who are gossips don't think they're gossips. And so often when I am slandering another person, I'm not even aware of it. 
so often that those that are gossip don't even know they're doing it. Uh, every so often, I've had these opportunities. And in one particular time, someone came in and, and wanted to talk to me in my office. And we sat down. And as they were talking about it, our, the name of our groups back in Louisiana were, we called them grow groups. And they were saying, well, our grow group has been talking about this. And we're really upset about this. And they were going on and on about a particular situation, a particular person's life. And I just looked at them and said to them, have you ever talked to that person about it? No. Are you willing to talk about it? No. Did they say it was okay for you to discuss this? No. And I looked at them and said, then you're just gossiping and I don't want to hear anymore. They weren't even aware of it. They didn't come back after that. <laughs> I've sat in restaurants where people from my church didn't even know I was there. And I heard the conversation. And I thought, oh, that's just gossip. Don't worry, I won't get up and confront you in the restaurant. Not even aware of it. And, that th and those that slander, often they're not even aware that what they are doing is being destructive towards the other person. There's a wonderful movie, I will admit I've seen it, called Mean Girls. <laughs> and if you've ever watched it, in it there's this thing called The Burn Book, which is a book that has gossip about all the, all the whole bunch of other people within the groups. And, and there's, this big debate, there's this big problem that erupts because of this gossip book and all the gossip and slander that's going on in the school. And finally, they call this big convocation of all the girls that are involved. And yes, in this case, it's girls, but... Guys, we're just as much gossips as the women are. And they confront it. And watch the blindness. Okay. Uh, everybody close your eyes. Right. I want you to raise your hand if you have ever had a girl say something bad about you behind your back. Open your eyes. Now, close your eyes again. And this time, I want you to raise your hand if you have ever said anything about a friend behind her back. Open up. Oh, it's been some girl-on-girl -girl crime here. Okay, so what we can do today is a couple exercises to help you express your anger in a healthy way. Let's start over here. Miss Norbury had us confront each other directly about the things that were bothering us. And it seems like every clique had its own problems. You've been acting really stuck up ever since you switched to short fielder, and Don agrees with me. Don? Don't drag me into this. I'm pitching tomorrow. Can I just say that we don't have a clique problem at this school? And some of us shouldn't have to take this workshop because some of us are just victims in the situation? That's probably true. How many of you have ever felt personally victimized by Regina George? That was the principal, the last one. <clears throat> Wasn't even aware of it. The one that was the biggest gossip in the school, the biggest slander in the school. Wasn't even aware of it. 
And so with that in mind, I give you, you may be a gossip if. You may be a gossip if you are sharing information that is second or third hand. You don't know the facts. You just know the rumors. You are gossiping if you are putting another person into a bad light, into a negative light. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, but I love that one in the original language where Paul said, and you remember when we were dealing with this, he said this, about you, boasting. To you, frankness. The teacher that said, you know, if you've got a problem, deal with it with that person. You're a gossip if you break somebody's confidence. You're a gossip if you share with someone who has no ability to address the problem. And prayer doesn't count. If you're sharing with them to say, well, you can pray more effectively about it. Yeah, right. You're asking God to bless a prayer that's coming up out of gossip. There's a problem with that. You don't need more people to be praying about it. If it comes through gossip. You're a gossip if you refuse to deal with the person about whom you are talking. I have wives and husbands and children come in and parents that will say to me, and rightfully so, they're coming in. They need assistance. They want to know, how do I deal with this? And I'll say, well, you know what? I think you ought to do this. Or or one of the things that I often say is, let them know you just came in and talked to me. And next time, come in together. Be amazed how many times I don't see them a second time. They just want to gossip. And then you're gossiping. If you share to gain advice and don't address the situation. You're slandering. You might be a slander if any information you're sharing is false. Now, I know what we immediately think. Well, I'm not going to lie. Well, let's try some things. You're slandering if you misrepresent a person's position or idea. All you have to do is listen to politics. It's what we hate most about politics. And yet too often we do it. Set up the straw man that you can easily tear down. You're slandering when you exaggerate the actions or the impacts of another. When you play the victim, that's slander. Now, you may be a victim. That's legitimate. But when you use that to attack and you use that to to destroy, then we've got a problem. You are slandering if the information is incomplete or shaded to be negative. I told you the story that I was in Texas with a group of men and we were staying somewhere and and there was a Hershey kiss stuck to the ceiling 
of this dorm we were staying in. And I grabbed it off the ceiling and jumped up and grabbed it. That's when I could jump. I jumped up and grabbed it off the ceiling and I, and I gave it to another guy. I thought he'd just throw it away. Well, he pops it in his mouth and eats it. And we were teasing that we were going to put in the church newspaper, Jim sickened by kiss from pastor. Was it true? Well, yeah, but it's shaded. You're slandering if you assume and ascribe wrong motives to another's actions. Ooh, is this a big one. You don't know their heart. Unless you've had the conversation with them, unless you've talked about it, you don't know. That's slander. And the fact is, beloved, we need to stop it. We need to deal with it. Not to condemn us. I struggle with these things too. But so that our relationships can grow and develop. So that we can stop the divisiveness and the hurting of others. We need to acknowledge that gossip and slander and self-centeredness are all sins that God is going to ask us to be accountable for. Not for punishment. That was dealt with in Christ. But to say, how did you use your words? Proverbs declares that there is the power of life and death in the tongue. Jesus says, how do you use your tongue? How do you use your words? Are they like Paul to build up? Even when they're difficult, even when they're frank, even when they need to be firm and maybe hard? Don't repeat something you don't know is true that you haven't heard firsthand. Don't repeat unless it is helpful to do so. And you have a vested interest in the situation or the people involved or permission to share. Doing it in the name of prayer request is not a justification. Yes, there are times I have information that it's helpful to tell another who can help in that situation. But if they can't contribute, then don't share it. Why are you sharing it? Don't confess other people's sins. Even if others are involved, share your story, not someone else's. Talk about what you did. When you must share, tell only what happened and not your commentary or your assumptions. That is such an important thing. We want to put motives and, and concepts and things in other people. We don't know. Keep the circle of sharing limited to the people involved. No more than are needed for accountability purposes. 
Choose to pray for others every time you are tempted to tell their story instead of telling their story. When someone tells you something you don't need to know, don't allow your curiosity to be your guide. I find this one I really struggle with because it's so easy to be curious. No. Stop the conversation and tell them, you know what? I don't need or want to know anymore. And then finally, if this gossip and slander, if the gossip and slander persists, privately and gently confront the person who is inappropriately sharing. To simply say, beloved, I believe that to be gossip. This comes from the ways to stop gossip by Ron Edmondson. I have said this before, and I really do believe it, that I believe the number one destructive Sin in churches, number one, is gossip. I am convinced that we are so blinded by our involvement in it, or blinded to our involvement in it. And to be willing to admit, God, this is serious. As serious as impurity and pornania, the word we get pornography from, the word immorality, debauchery. And we need to take what we've said and sung this morning and, you know, Lord, take my heart. I want to see the truth. Not so that we can feel bad about ourselves, but so that we can deal with it and be able to better reflect the body of Christ in all that we do. We don't know what happened at Corinth. Church history doesn't tell us. My hope is that they dealt with it. And when Paul came, it was a wonderful visit. Beloved, I don't know what the story is going to be for me or for Grace Community Church or for any church. This isn't just because we have this struggle. But my hope is we will deal with this in our lives so that we might be more loving, more caring, more compassionate moral reflection of Christ in all that we do. Father, thank you for Paul's openness, for Paul's willingness to deal with an area that we all struggle with. Father, I pray that you would allow us to be open and responsive to your spirit and to be willing to see those places where we're quarrelsome, where we strike out in anger, where we cause division. Father, where we slander and gossip, where we just bring general disorder. 
Father, it is a work that you do in your children. This is not to condemn others or to condemn the world, but, Father, to look within our own hearts. It begins with our relationship with you through your Son and the desire to want to be more and more like you. And we invite every Sunday morning, if you're not certain of a relationship with Christ, to come and speak to me or someone how to know that. Father, those of us who are your children, we would ask that we would be committed to loving well, to dealing with these issues in our lives, in order that we might better reflect the image of your Son and the ways that we love one another. We ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus.